0: The Apostle Paul was a great man, possessed of a powerful intellect an unparalleled zeal and gifted by God beyond measure. Paul was used by God to spread the gospel of Christ throughout the Roman world and to lay the theological foundations of the New Covenant Church. Paul was even granted the extraordinary privilege of seeing what he calls visions and revelations of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12.1 And one of these visions which he mentions in 2 Corinthians 12 in which 14 years earlier he had been caught up to the third heaven whether in the body or out of the body he says he does not know caught up into paradise itself where he heard things, quote, that cannot be told, which man may not utter. But, says Paul, the only reason why he mentions to the Corinthian church this heavenly vision was because it afforded him the opportunity to talk about his weakness. Namely, a perpetual thorn in the flesh which was given him to keep his pride in check, And to keep him from trusting in his own strength, in his own power, in his own extraordinary giftedness. Here's how Paul put it. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now what this thorn in the flesh was has garnered much speculation over the years. Many have suggested that it was some kind of physical ailment, like head or ear pain, so thought Tertullian or Eye trouble, which some people have thought based upon some things that Paul writes in Galatians 4, maybe malaria from all of his travels or epilepsy, or maybe even a speech impediment that kept him from being able to speak eloquently in public, which is why he said that people's reaction when he came to them in person was was much less impressive than when he had written to them his weighty letters afar. Medieval interpreters suggested that Paul's thorn in the flesh was sexual temptation, which I think perhaps is themselves projecting their own struggles as celibate clerics. The reformers tended to view the thorn in the flesh as a spiritual temptation, or perhaps the temptation that arose from all the persecutions that he suffered. Some more unhappily married interpreters have even suggested that Paul's thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan sent to torment him was undoubtedly his wife. Whatever it was, the point in this text is clear. The thorn in the flesh was given to Paul in order to teach both Paul and us a very important lesson about God. Namely, that God's omnipotent, majestic strength is made perfect. That is, it is performed, it is executed, it is completed, it is fulfilled in human weakness. God loves to display his grace and his power in human weakness, in human frailty. So God gave Paul this thorn in the flesh because it was good for Paul to know and it was good for the world to know that it was not by Paul's power but rather by the power of God that Christ's kingdom and reign was being established Paul learned this lesson because he wrote therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me Do you want the power of Christ to rest upon you then boast in your weakness. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The same lesson was learned a thousand years earlier by David. David. And it is on display in our text for this morning, which comes from Psalm 8, which begins with the triumphant declaration of the majesty of the Lord's name and ends with the same declaration. And in between, David provides two examples of the Lord's majestic power being made perfect in human weakness. The second example of which takes us into the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 2 and directs us to the birth of Christ, when the sovereign, omnipotent majesty of the Son of God took the form of a helpless, crying, nursing infant. So my prayer is that God would use this psalm to remind us this Christmas season that our salvation was not accomplished by human strength but rather by God's divine grace and power working through the weakness of the incarnation and through the weakness of the crucifixion, leading to the power and majesty and glory displayed in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. My aim this morning is that we, like Paul, would boast in the weakness of Christ in the manger and the weakness of Christ on the cross in order that we may rejoice in the power of Him who is now crowned with glory and honor in His resurrection and His ascension and His soon coming return. Psalm 8 begins with an identical ascription of praise to the Lord. It begins and ends In the same way, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now we don't need to say a whole lot about these verses because the entire middle of the psalm fills out what David means in verses 1 and 9. Instead, I just want to make two brief notes to get us started. First, David is not repeating himself in verses 1 and 9. There's no redundancy in the address, O Lord, our Lord. The first Lord, you'll note, is in all capital letters, which signifies that David is using the divine name, Yahweh. The second Lord is in lowercase letters because it translates the Hebrew title, Adonai, which means, my Lord or my King. This practice of replacing the divine name, Yahweh, with the honorific title Adonai, or Lord, is ancient and it reflects the scribal reverence for the name of God and a concern that they not inadvertently transgress the third commandment. And how this practice became standard in the course of, of textual transmission is a long and complicated story. So for our purposes this morning, I just want you to know that David actually exclaims, O oh, Yahweh! Our Lord, our King, how majestic is your name, your name, Yahweh, in all the earth. Second, what has provoked this cry of praise from David's lips seems to be his memories of gazing at the fiery heavens on display over Israel. Both demonstrations of God's power in human weakness, which David is going to mention in in the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 and then in verses 3 to 8, begin or are set against the backdrop of David's contemplation of the night sky. He's thinking of the stars ablaze against the backdrop of black. You'll notice there's no reference to the sun in this psalm. He says in verse 1, You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, verse 3, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So twice, verse 1c, he's looking at God's glory displayed in the heavens. And then he thinks about God's power displayed in human weakness. And then again in verse 3, When I look at the heavens... The work of your fingers, the sun, or the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And then what comes to mind again is God's power made perfect in human weakness. So you can imagine David as a teenage shepherd tending his father's flocks out on the open pastures of Judea. Or you can imagine David as a young man in his 20s on the run from Saul sleeping out under the stars on the mountains of Israel and looking up at the night sky unclouded by light pollution, ablaze with innumerable stars and constellations and fiery nebulae, meditating as he lay there upon the majesty of his God, Yahweh, his Lord and his King, who created all this, the vast heavens, and created them with his fingers. This is the backdrop for David's meditation which follows. Because, and this is our point, as glorious a display of God's majesty as can be seen in the heavens, according to David and according to Paul, there is an even greater demonstration of God's glory available and it's found in the weakness of man. Verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens, yet out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. So now riding perhaps years after those youthful nights out under the stars, having now a little bit more experience, a little bit more mileage under his belt, David now knows that there is a greater way in which God's glory is revealed than what he has seen displayed in the night sky. Though God has set his glory above the heavens, though he spoke a word, and the celestial objects came into being and took their places upon the canvas of his glory, yet it is not by such majestic demonstrations of his omnipotent power that God thwarts the attacks of his enemies and silences the blasphemies of his foes. Rather, it is with the praise that proceeds out of the mouth of babies and toddlers. It's out of the mouths of babes and infants, the weakest, the most dependent of humanity, that God establishes his strength, or in some translations, that he establishes his praise in the face of his foes. It's out of the mouths of babes and infants that God stills, that he silences his enemies and his avengers. Why? Why does God, who can do all this with his fingers, why does he use children to overcome his enemies? Why not simply destroy his enemies with the breath of his mouth? It's because God's power is made perfect in human weakness. To illustrate what David means, I want to direct your attention to the one instance in the New Testament where Psalm 8:2 is quoted. The occasion is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he entered into the temple, cleansed it, and then took his seat and began receiving to himself the blind and the lame who were coming to him for healing. Matthew records in Matthew chapter 21, verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. But have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared Praise. See, according to Jesus, God was fulfilling Psalm 8 2 in their very midst. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, that is, young children, He was establishing strength because of His foes to still or silence the enemy and the avenger, in this case, the chief priests and the scribes. According to Jesus, this is the way God works. The wise and the powerful who had spent their entire lives in the service of the temple and in the study of the law failed to recognize God's son when he came. But children playing in the street immediately recognized the son of David as he walked by and they stopped their games in order to worship him. The Son of God who flung the stars into space could have proven His identity with a great demonstration of His power, but instead He established His strength in the face of His enemies through the voices of children. Why? Because God's power is made perfect in human weakness. But the main focus of our attention this morning is on verses 3 to 8, which provides the second demonstration of this principle, that the Lord's power is made perfect in human weakness. David writes, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now you'll notice here the same flow of thought that we saw in the first couple of verses. After contemplating God's majesty declared, revealed, manifested in the heavens, David is astounded to think that God has set his affections upon man and even uses man in all of his weakness to rule over all that God has made. Now, before I get to the main point of this sermon, I want to I take a moment and I want to take a short sidetrack and I just want to note how David made use of general revelation because there's something here that we need to see. David wrote in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Do you hear what David's saying? Day by day, night by night, The heavens above are pouring forth praises for the majesty and the glory of their creator. The swirling galaxies and the radiant nebulae spanning hundreds of thousands of light years of cross are just shouting ceaselessly, Yahweh. But we don't see it. And we don't hear it. And we don't even look up. We just go on with our noses in our phones believing that the most interesting interesting thing happening in the cosmos is what's going down on Twitter. I want you to look at some of the images that are going to be scrolling behind me. These are images brought back from the Hubble telescope from millions of light years away. These are the work of God's fingers. With the care of a sculptor, God formed the limitless heavens. And He made them in order to make visible the majesty of our invisible God. Where is God's majesty made visible? It's made visible up there. Lift up your eyes on high and see, says Isaiah. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number? Who calls them all by name? By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Isaiah says to the church, lift up your eyes out of your phones and see. Consider how all of this came into existence. Consider what kind of God can do this. We would do well to gaze upon the canvas of creation on which God has painted his glory, to see it and to listen as it speaks to us. Because if we did, we might learn something about God and we might learn something about ourselves. David did. He learned, when he looked up at the heavens, he learned about the majesty of a God who created a universe 93 billion light years in diameter, and who created it with his fingers. And he learned how infinitesimally small man is by comparison. And that caused him to be astounded that this God would make this man just a little lower than the angels and would give him rule over all that he had made. That God would look upon this little speck of dust walking around on on one speck of light in the midst of the immense galaxies and he would set his affection upon him. And not just humanity in general, men individually. You. The God who created all of that has affection for you. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. The God who created the infinitely immense expanse of the heavens is mindful of you. And that's an astounding thought that I hope would sink in. Or better yet, that it would have the effect upon you that it had upon David. So go out and gaze at the night sky or go on Google and look at the pictures that are coming back from the Hubble telescope. The God who spoke the galaxies into existence is mindful of you. But not only is he mindful of man, God has chosen man to reign over the earth. He made him just a little lower than the heavenly beings, Literally, he made him a little lower than the gods, lowercase g, translated into the Greek as the angels. God made man king over the earth and he granted him dominion over everything. Verses 6 to 8 call to mind Genesis chapter 1 and they're supposed to. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Why? It's what David asked. Why would God choose to reign over the earth through weak And minuscule creatures like men, because God's power is made perfect in human weakness. But what does all of this have to do with Christmas? Everything, as it turns out. Some of you know where I'm going. You see, man was not content to be just a little lower than the heavenly beings. He was not content with the glory and honor with which God had crowned him. Why? I suggest that it's because he failed to look up at the stars. He failed to contemplate the majesty of God displayed in the heavens. Therefore, he imagined a God who was small, a God who was just a little above him. A God who could be usurped, a God who could be discarded, a God who could be replaced. And so man fell into sin and rebellion and came underneath God's wrath and curse. His glory and honor was stripped from him. And though man still exercises a level of dominion over the earth, it is a brutal and a miserable dominion. It is exercised by violence and it is exercised By the sweat of His brow. All men have been cast out of the garden, stripped of their glory and honor, and condemned to everlasting punishment. But God is still mindful of man. He still cares for the Son of Man. And so God implemented a plan, a redemption. And how would He accomplish it? Would he accomplish it by great displays of his omnipotent power? Is that the way God usually works? No, because God's power is made perfect in human weakness. God's redemptive plan would be accomplished through the weakness and the frailty of human flesh. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, which is where we'll spend the remainder of our time. Because there the author picks up Psalm 8 and he applies it directly to the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see what he's doing? He's using Psalm 8 to establish five evangelical, that is gospel, truths. And I want to draw your attention to those truths this morning. He's preaching the gospel of Christ from Psalm 8. And I want to outline a sermon for you. The first truth that he points out is that the world was not given to angels, it was given to man. Now this may sound like a strange point to make, but it explains why Jesus became man. The entire thrust of Hebrews chapter 1 was to show that Jesus, the Son of God, is superior to the angels. Look up at Hebrews 1.3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the author then proceeds to draw from a host of Old Testament passages which prove the superiority of the Messiah to the angels, concluding in verse 14 that angels are but ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, namely us. Then after a brief exhortation to heed the gospel of him who is superior to the angels and a warning against neglecting the salvation that was accomplished through him, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, the author returns to this theme. Okay, we might say, so the Son of God is superior to the angels. But angels are clearly greater, more powerful, more glorious beings than man. So why didn't Jesus become an angel in order to save the world? Why did Jesus become man, weak and frail and mortal? Well, says the author, Jesus did not become an angel because God did not subject the world to come to angels. He subjected the world to man. Therefore, in order for man to be redeemed, and in order for the world to be redeemed and restored to its intended idyllic state, the Son of God needed to become not an angel, he needed to become man. Only man is earth's rightful king, and therefore only man can rule the earth. This will make a little sense to you if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. I'm going to show you my inner nerd. This is why in Tolkien's story, the elves, the angelic figures of Middle-earth, could not rule Middle-earth, though it would seem to all that they were far better equipped to do so, being immortal and powerful and innately good. Why? Middle-earth wasn't given to the elves. It was given to man, and therefore only man could rule it. But why did God not subject the world to angels? I mean, in the beginning, why did he not subject the world to angels? It's because God's power is made perfect in human weakness. Second point. Man failed to rule the earth, lost dominion, and was stripped of his glory and honor. Pride, greed, and the desire to become like God overcame man's heart, and he fell. And when the king fell, his kingdom fell also. Sin and death entered the world, and it became a corrupt, futile, groaning place. This is what the author means in the second half of verse 8 when he says, At present we do not yet see everything subjected to him, namely to man. There is still much beauty and glory and abundance on this earth, but it is mixed and mingled with so much defilement and disease and death. There's still a lot on this earth that resembles the Shire and Gondor and Rohan, but there's a whole lot of Mordor here as well. And there hasn't been a human king to reign upon earth's throne for many an age. Third, Jesus became man, not an angel, in order to redeem man and the earth from the ravages of evil. This is the reason why the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel don't celebrate Christmas. It's because Christmas is about the eternal Son of God, who is superior to the angels, being made for a little while lower than the angels. An angel could not redeem man because an angel would not be a fit substitute, a fit representative for man. There's going to be more on that in just a moment. And an angel could not redeem the earth from its fallen state. Angels can only destroy the earth. The earth was not given to angels. It was given to man. Jesus' incarnation was essential to the work of redemption and it is in accord with God's modus operandi of working through human weakness. This is precisely why God's chosen king became incarnate in a poor unmarried Israelite maiden was born in a stable and took his first nap in a manger. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Fourth, Jesus as man tasted death for man. Here then is the core of the gospel. Jesus became man. He was made for a little while lower than the angels in order that he might taste death. Death for man, in order that he might die in the place of man. Only man could be a fit substitute for man in the judgment of God. And only a God-man could possess the intrinsic worth necessary to represent every man. The sin of man, Adam's sin, your sin, my sin, is an affront to the honor of the majestic God who formed the heavens with his finger. This affront to God's honor and glory demands the satisfaction of justice. Divine justice demands a penalty for sin, and that penalty is death, wrath, and the everlasting curse of God. So the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan to save mankind and to save the earth is a substitution The divine Son of God laid aside His glory and He took on the weakness and the frailty of human flesh. He lived in that weakness and that frailty. And He then went to the cross to suffer the most humiliating, painful, ignominious, weak death ever devised. The cross is a picture of weakness and shame. Because what can a bloody, bruised, suffocating victim nailed to a cross do in the face of such monumental cosmic sin and evil? What can a man condemned and crucified as a criminal do in the face of infinite and overpowering wrath? But the power of God is made perfect in human weakness, isn't it? The cross is the ultimate demonstration of this truth. The Son of God bearing all of the evil and all of the sins of all of His people went to the cross. And there, like a cosmic vacuum, He drew into Himself all of God's furious wrath, shh! until it was all absorbed in his body and satisfied in his death. And then by his blood, he transformed all of that divine energy into sovereign and omnipotent grace, like he held it within himself and then exploded it out upon a sin-defeated world. And the shockwave of this explosion of grace is still expanding across the globe. The foremost picture of human weakness and suffering is at one and the same time the foremost demonstration of the grace and saving power of God that this world has ever or will ever see. Fifth, through His resurrection and ascension, Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor. And through the weakness of faith, so will we be also. Because of the suffering of death, weakness, right? Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor, power. He was raised in triumph over sin and death and hell. He ascended to heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And now Jesus is calling all men everywhere to rise up and to follow him by faith. Out of sin and out of bondage and through him to take our rightful place as kings of the earth. He is calling us to put to death sin by the spirit and to drive the enemy out of the land and to establish righteousness and peace and joy in our hearts. And on the last day when the king returns to put all his enemies under his feet and to judge the living and the dead, he will set his throne upon a renewed earth and we will be seated with him, crowned with glory and honor, reigning beside him in power, just as God intended. So how was Christ's majestic kingdom established? It was established through the weakness of the manger and through the weakness of the cross. It was established through human frailty, through human suffering, through human death. And how will we come to reign with him? In the very same way. Through the weakness of the of suffering through the weakness of persecutions, through the weakness of trials and tribulations on every side, through the weakness of faith which grasps in a strong and omnipotent and gracious Christ. Why? Why did God design that men would be saved in this way? David knew... Because he looked up at the stars. Paul knew. Because though he saw visions too wonderful to put into words. God had given him a thorn in the flesh. And God wants us to know. It's because his power is made perfect in human weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. You will not experience the power of God in the forgiveness of sins. You will not experience the power of God in new life. You will not experience the power of God in overcoming temptation and overcoming sin until you become weak. God does not want to add his strength to your strength. This is why the Christian life is all of faith. Faith is human weakness reaching out for and relying upon divine strength. You cannot do it. You do not possess the strength. You cannot save yourself. You cannot overcome sin through the strength and the determination of your own flesh and your own resolve. You cannot heal what is wounded nor fix what is broken in your life. You possess neither the power nor the wisdom nor the courage to do so. You are powerless, you are weak, and you are insufficient for the task. But God is strong and He is mighty to save. So reach for Him this morning. Look up at the heavens. Better yet, look at the glory and majesty of God revealed in the manger and at the cross. And come to the place that David did. When I look at the heavens, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, yet you do? Rely in your weakness upon His grace and strength for forgiveness and mercy, for healing and for restoration, and you will find that His grace is sufficient for you, and you will find that His power is made perfect when you become weak.